Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Midnight Student, an IO psychology podcast sponsored by IOPSA, the IO Student Association at Hofstra University. I'm your host, like always, Ali Saliolu, and I hope everyone is enjoying the holiday season coming up. It's a very festive and exciting time, which is such a nice break from everything that has been going on this year. So I hope that you actually enjoy my gift to you all, which is sitting down with my next guest, uh, Jared Weintraub, or actually, should I call you Dr. Weintraub? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Ali. I'm really excited to be here and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. We actually connected through Dr. Islam, who I've had on my first episode. And I know you're also running a podcast for Metro and we can talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, you know, I, I want to talk about uh, your your title doctor now, because I know you just completed your PhD uh, at Hofstra did, University. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. could you just talk a little bit about how, how that journey has been for you so far? <laughs> Well, it's been a certainly windy, sort of strange journey that's brought me here. I think if you had asked me in high school, um, you know, what I'd be doing in the future, becoming a PhD was definitely not one of the things that I thought I might be doing. Um, I always actually wanted to be a musician. So growing up, that's kind of was my sole focus. I, you know, learned to play guitar and I was a singer and um, really, my focus was um, not so much on school, although I, you know, I got decent grades and I kind of put in the work that I needed to make sure that I got by. But um, music was always sort of my sole fo- focus. And I pursued it um, after going to school at the University of Delaware. Um, I actually pursued music for about three years after I graduated and kind of traveled around the country and a little bit around the world and performed and really um, was very focused on, you know, getting that cover of the Rolling Stone magazine and, <laughs> uh, you know, being being super famous. That's what I, I was like all about. Um, so I, I did that for a few years and, you know, I, I, I saw a little bit of success there, but I, um, I got burnt out really. And at that point, Uh, I decided to kind of pivot and uh, worked for a couple of startups. And in working for those startups, I um, got interested in building, growing um, business, building and growing businesses and, you know, helping to helping people to thrive at work. Um, And that's where I, I learned about IO psychology and ended up doing my master's, um, at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology at their um, Washington, D.C. campus, which was actually pretty new at that point. And I was able to work um, for an education technology startup while I was um, doing my master's and applying sort of what I was learning in my master's to school and then writing my papers about um, papers in school about the work that I was doing outside of school and really thought that um, that was going to be it for me. I never really envisioned myself pursuing the PhD, but about halfway through, I read an article by Scott Dust, who is a a researcher that I've had the opportunity and the pleasure and honor to 
co-author um, a couple of um, articles with at this point. I read an article um, that he had written in IOPSA um, about mindfulness flow and mind wandering at work. And basically his description of flow or like getting into the zone really resonated with me because of my days as a musician. I was really familiar with what flow was and how it felt and, you know, how great it was, um, in my opinion. And his article described flow at work and how people often get into the zone at work, but this is a really understudied area in the IO literature. And so that inspired me to, um, you know, go back and get my PhD and learn how to do research and become an expert in this, like, super niche area within IO that was pretty understudied. And I thought, oh, I would love to become an expert on this particular construct and help people to and organizations to experience flow more frequently at work because I was also familiar with it at work um, working in startups. So um, just sort of the nature of working in startups, there was so, it was so high touch as far as being able to make decisions and sort of execute on ideas and be creative because there were so few people at the organizations that I was uh, working at that if you wanted to kind of get something done, uh, it was kind of on you to, to take that initiative and do it and was exciting. So I thought, oh, it'd be amazing if I can help others to experience this feeling at work and uh, the rest is kind of history. Um, so that's how I kind of decided to to pursue the PhD. And um, that's, that's what I've been doing the last, uh, last three years. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like quite the the journey you had so far. And, you know, I just want to say, and give you a huge congratulations, because I'm sure getting a PhD is no easy task. And I've heard from a lot of people that they just want to give up, you know, like halfway through, but you just got to keep pushing and pushing. And it's really worth it in the end, you know, that you, you get that title and then you, you, you have that, that article published in your name and, you know, just that feeling of joy and like, all right, I did this. So yeah, definitely applaud you. But you, you mentioned a whole lot and we can definitely, you know, unpack it a little further. You Great. said that, you know, you, you took a couple of years off, right? After your master's. So, yes, I took about a year in between because um, I, I had graduated and I moved back from um, D.C. to New York where I'm from originally and um, got a job at another startup and uh, was working there while I was applying to uh, the Ph.D. programs. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I would love to hear your take on this because, you know, I am really talking to a lot of graduate students that maybe wanting to pursue their PhD and take that extra step after mm -hmm. their master's, would you recommend, you know, taking that gap year or even two or three and putting your foot in the door in the workplace, getting that experience? Or do you think it's best to kind of just jump straight into a PhD program? I've heard so many mixed things about it. And mm -hmm. uh, for someone like me as well, that wants to potentially pursue their PhD, you know, it's always a question that I ask myself. So I'd love to hear your take on it as well. Yeah. So I guess the first question is sort of why do the PhD if you're um, getting your master's, right? 
So the reasons that I really wanted to pursue the PhD was, like I said, because I was really passionate about a specific area of research that I really wanted to dive into and become an expert in. And because I thought that there was a lot of opportunity in that that area because it hadn't been sort of, um, you know, looked into so deeply in the literature before me. Um, So I just sort of found that niche and thought, oh, this is a great thing that I should pursue. And it should sort of have a good um, return on investment in a way, just as far as, um, you know, there was not a lot of opportunity to, to be sort of uncovered there. So that's one thing. I think, I think one of the most important distinctions between the master's and the PhD is the, um, the focus on research and learning how to do vigorous, um, you know, and rigorous uh, research um, on, you know, whatever it is, right? So you're, you're sort of getting the PhD to, to learn that skill set of like conducting research, which um, the great thing about our field in particular is that um, you're learning that skill set with an eye for application. Um, and, and so you're going to be able to like use that to um, either pursue a career in academia or learn how to, you know, answer these kinds of questions in the workplace at whatever organization that you end up at. So, um, that was the first thing was just making sure, like, I really want to spend the next few years learning to do that research and also like researching something kind of specific. So, um, that's, that's like a really important thing. Um, and yeah, I think I think another important question is like, are you interested in going the academic route? And um, if the answer is yes, then doing the PhD is is a really important step to take because um, I would I would imagine that like that's a it's a requirement to to become a professor to go that academic route. Um, so those are like the two biggest things. The other thing is definitely. Um, one area that I knew that I had a lot to improve in was the sort of statistics and data analytics side. Um, math was never sort of my thing. I, you know, for whatever reason, it just didn't ever um, excite me and it was really challenging for me. And um, those two things probably go together uh, pretty strongly. But, um, you know, I, I I wanted to understand how to interpret statistics, how to read uh, research and understand what I was reading. So coming out of the master's program, when I was doing, when I sort of got hooked on this idea of flow, I would read the, you know, um, the published literature and, and studies on this topic that I was really interested in. And I'd sort of read the introduction and kind of get the idea of what they were talking about and then completely basically skip the method section, except for just the description of like what the study was going to do. And then sort of like read the results section and, and really focus on the discussion because it was sort of more like in English to me, if that made sense. Right. So I, I really wanted to learn like, how can I look at these studies and know, what I'm reading and and conduct that research as well. Um, so those are the kind of the main guidelines that I'd have for like why to to go into the PhD. You know, the people analytics side. There's a ton of 
there's a ton of opportunity there. I think um, if you're getting your master's, there's opportunity to learn those skills too. But if you're doing your PhD, then you kind of have to, in order to get through the dissertation process, learn how to conduct the analyses that are required to do this kind of research. Yeah, th- that's a, such a good point. And those are really good questions to kind of think about if you want to go that PhD route. Uh, but, you know, as a fellow guitar player myself, you know, you mentioned guitar and how you were into music. I know exactly what you mean with uh, the concept of flow. And you really do enter like that flow state when you're playing guitar or like when you're mm-hmm. writing like a story or whatever it may be. It can even be you know, something small. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious with your research and flow because I love flow. I think it's super interesting. And I think that, you know, it can also be applied to work settings. Uh, and yeah, I feel like there's definitely not as much research as there should be in flow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with flow, like, do, does the task have to be something that, you actually enjoy can or can it be anything like can you enter the flow state in like a mundane task so yes so it's actually a um sort of related to what my research looks at which is like individual differences that can help us to you know get into flow um so you know um you and i could potentially be you know in the same role at the same company and just because of the ways that we approach our work, the frequency with which we would each get in flow could be completely different. So um, just so like everybody's everybody's familiar, flow is this uh, present moment state where you have clear goals, you have this balance of challenge and skills. So things are difficult, yet you have the commensurate skills to like meet that difficulty, if it makes sense. So uh, if something is too difficult and uh, you don't have the commensurate skill set, then you feel like really anxious. If you have, um, you know, if you're really good at something and the challenge is not there, it's too easy for you, then you kind of feel bored or apathetic. So ideally you have challenges that meet that are sort of like difficult for you but you know that you can sort of accomplish them Um, and you're like really concentrated you block out distractions time will often um, transform so it will either speed up or slow down mostly in the workplace we we hear about it speeding up so if you sit down to you know write a paper or write a report um, you'll you know be so into that uh, task that you'll look up from your screen and, and hours have passed and it feels like it's only been um, a few minutes. So the the sort of antecedents or the things that lead to flow are the, are these three things, clear goals, a balance of challenge and skill and feedback. And so um, going back to your question, which is like, can mundane tasks kind of um, still enable flow. And, and to my um, scenario where we were talking about how we could both be in the same role in the same position, right? Um, you could get to work, let's say we're both salespeople um, and your boss may not provide those clear goals um, or like set the challenge level of those goals or provide feedback. And so we'll both get to work and you might not 
you know, have any idea what you want to be doing that day. Um, you might just sort of be overwhelmed by the ambiguity of the work and really not be able to get into flow at all. Whereas, you know, I might come in and say, today I'm going to make 100 phone calls. Um, and, um, you know, that could be a, a because of my history in the job, I could know that that's like a realistic yet challenging goal that I've set for myself. And then by the end of the day, like I have feedback for myself, how many phone calls did I actually make today? And me like putting those things in place could help me to get into flow more frequently. And so the same is true for mundane tasks, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to accomplish um, X number of widgets today, or, or I want to, um, you know, make sure that the quality of my work is to this standard today and putting those three sort of pillars in place for yourself, even on tasks that might not excite you, um, could help you to get into flow doing those tasks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because uh, I mean, I was always just curious about it because I feel like I found myself entering flow <laughs> with like, just putting numbers in like a spreadsheet or something, you know, like very repetitive mm-hmm. uh, tasks. And usually when you, when you hear about flow, it's more like creative, innovative uh, things that you like encounter flow. But you know, yeah, that's why I was curious. That makes a lot of sense of uh, mm-hmm. why I would maybe enter flow in those mundane tasks and stuff like that. But I think you made a good point before with like flow and ambiguity don't really go that well together. Right. Because, mm-hmm. There are times where, uh, you know, I can enter flow, like in those mundane tasks, as long as I know what I'm doing. But ambiguity is like, you know, the the blocker of flow almost. Like if I don't know what I'm doing, I feel like I'm just in that writer's block mode. And it's like, mm-hmm. man, I, nothing is going to get done. Like I just feel so discouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So in, in like a scenario like that, um, what you could do is sort of set goals for yourself to help you get past that writer's block stage. Like I want to write X amount of words in X amount of time. And, you know, whether or not the quality of those words is, you know, what you want to end up with at the end of your journey, at least it kind of gets you started and gets the ball moving and will sort of help you to, um, get into that groove that you need to really get the, um, you know, get the words on the paper, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, would you ever say, this might be a weird question, I guess, because we, we see flow as like a good thing, but is there ever a time where flow can be negative? You know, because we see it in a positive light, like we all want to achieve that state of flow, but is there ever like a re- uh, a way that it can be bad? Yeah, that's a great question because this is actually one of the least studied things about this understudied construct in our field. Um, So that's a great question. So yeah, there are these dark sides of of flow. Um, So some of the elements of flow themselves, right? Like blocking out distractions is one thing, right? So let's say that you're a manager and your job is to sort of share information with others and you know, help people to execute in their jobs and really be like a catalyst for others' performance. But, you know, you go into your office and you have all of these emails. And so you close your door and you just like focus on your individual tasks and you get into flow and you're just, you know, answering emails and like hours are going by. And then 
you realize like, oh, you know, I didn't check in with my support, you know, my direct report because um, I was just so into this task, right? Or like I, people were, had been calling me and I didn't hear them because I was so in flow. I was, I was just, you know, focused on the thing that I wanted to get done. Um, and so as a manager, you're not actually like executing on some of the most important parts of your job because you've blocked those things out as distractions. Um, another potential downside is actually uh, increased risk, uh, risk taking. And so um, one of the other elements of flow, like this, this idea of the balance of challenge and skill is really perception, um, you know, is like you think that this thing is this challenging and that you have the commensurate level of skill to sort of meet that challenge. And part of flow is also um, like reduce, reduce self-consciousness. So you feel like really confident about that thing that you're doing. And so as you sort of in, to stay into flow, you kind of have to in, keep increasing that challenge as your skills develop. And you might perceive that your skills are actually higher than um, they really are. And especially in like extreme sports or areas where um, the sort of downsides of overestimating your skills are really detrimental, um, that has a lot of potential to happen um, when you're in flow at work as well. So, you know, oh, I think I can get this, this report done and this period of time and you you're like really in the zone while you're doing the report you tell your boss that it'll be done by you know x x time but you've actually overestimated your ability to do that and so like that could cost you as well um yeah so that's just a couple of things um that that have have sort of shown up in the literature but to be honest most of those things um, have been studied outside of the workplace, and there's very little research that has looked at it um, in the work domain. So, um, great area of exploration for sure. Yeah, that's fascinating, and that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I could see how that might be, you know, entering like uh, on productivity almost, which is weird to say because you're being productive in flow, but you might be kind of denying like the the other tasks that you might have to do and if you have like a deadline especially if you have like a lot of task variety or something and you're only focusing on Mm -hmm. one thing i could see how that might affect your your performance or or something like that absolutely you can totally go you can go down rabbit holes that are really not what you should be focusing on it's funny that you actually asked this question because um when i started the phd program this was a question that Dr. Nolan, who um, is my advisor, asked me um, at the beginning when I told him I was so interesting. He asked me, you know, is flow useful in all areas of work? And we ended up sort of developing a, a, a construct called flow metacognition, where we asked people like how useful is, jo- is flow for work? And people have varying degrees of um, like attitudes about how flow is positive or negative for work. And, and that, that, um, that perception of, of usefulness, actually we've shown in, in the research that I've done with Dr. Nolan, um, that if you think it's useful for work, then you actually experience flow more frequently at work, which is kind of an interesting, uh, concept that we've uncovered. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I that's think. awesome. That's that's really interesting. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, that actually kind of brings me to my next point because, you know, you even said to yourself, like, flow is kind of underrepresented in the research as far as, like, the workplace. Usually when you think of flow, you might think of, like, artists or sports and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, where it's more creative or more, like, on the physical realm. But, you know, in the workplace, I think flow is starting to emerge more and more. So how, like, how can organization, like, let's say flow enters the workplace and, 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 uh, managers or supervisors or consultants are starting to, you know, uh, introduce flow into the workplace. How can they, uh, like incorporate that in a practical sense? Like, is there a way that Mm -hmm. they can make it better for employees to achieve flow? Yeah. So a lot of the literature, um, regarding flow in the workplace actually looks at the organizational level. So what can organizations do and to help facilitate flow at work um, and sort of goes back to those three pillars that I talked about, right? Those clear goals, that balance of challenge and skill and feedback. And all, th- all three of those things tend to be in, at least in the work that I've done, things that organizations can can struggle struggle with a lot so idea of clear goals um if there's a lot of like role ambiguity a lot of times people will struggle and they don't know you know what they should be doing whether or not they're doing a good job and so making sure that those clear goals are in place for individuals and really for organizations ideally um what organizations would do is sort of um, you know, set those higher order goals and then set like team level goals, individual goals, and make sure that employees really know like what the, the purposes of the organization and what what they're trying to achieve, um, both as an organization, as a team, and, and as an individual. So that's one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing goes to this challenge, this, this balance of challenge and skill that I was talking about. So uh, managers especially have the ability to check in with their direct reports and see, um, you know, how are you, how are you doing? Like, do you feel challenged as an employee? Are you feeling, are you feeling bored? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Um, Or are we right in that sweet spot that I'm talking about where you feel like you can, uh, like you kind of need to show up and and do your best, but at the same time, um, you're not overwhelmed by the amount of work that you have to do. So as a manager, um, or the ch- or the challenge level of the work that you have to do, right? So um, as a manager, you want to try to um, work with your team to figure out where that sort of level is of challenge of challenge and understand where the skills are within your team and within the people who are, are working with you um, so that you can help to set those sort of standards at an appropriate uh, level for people. Um, and then the final thing is feedback, which is something that's really important that often um, organizations don't sort of ingrain in their culture. So just having those check-ins and letting people know um how they're doing and how they can improve in in like constructive ways. Um, I think that's really, really helpful as well. And then some other things are like autonomy, you know, giving, giving people the ability to have a little bit of control over their work and, and, you know, 
how much or when they get things done. Um, that's shown up in the literature a little bit. Um, and yeah, that's, there's a few, few different things. One of the things I really like about the theory is that each of those three things that I mentioned, like clear goals, the challenge skill balance and feedback are, are really simple to say out loud, but then when you dig a little bit deeper, they're actually pretty complex and um, have like entire subfields that are sort of uh, dedicated to them. Um, so that's why, you know, throughout the PhD program, I've really seen elements of flow theory pop up in uh, lots of different theories, like, you know, job demands, resources theory is one of them, mm-hmm. um, where you see like clear and, and like obviously goal setting theory, like there's just clear um, parallels and connections between these theories that I'm like, oh, that's sort of like a, a tenant of flow that's just built in um, to these well-known theories in in io psychology yeah and i know flow is almost like it can be uh talked about as like a motivational theory too right i know it overlaps Mm -hmm. with a lot of things like that um because yeah yeah the intrinsic reward is a huge is a huge part intrinsic motivation is a huge part of flow um and, and one of actually the areas there's there's this idea of the paradox of flow at work so people experience flow frequently at work, even though they're not necessarily doing things that they enjoy all the time. So this kind of goes back to your like question of like, can people get into flow doing mundane tasks? Because mm-hmm. when you think about flow, you often think about like playing guitar or like doing a sport that you love. And, and outside of the workplace, um, we have a lot of control over like doing activities that we know can help us to achieve flow or that like personally as individuals, we often feel flow in. But in the workplace, um, there's a varying amount of control that we have over the tasks that we're doing. And that can often cause issues, right? It, 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 call, it, it causes like, you know, um, just boundaries on our ability to get into flow at work, yet, yet we do. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting area to explore as well. Right. And you know, flow is very interesting because it's, I feel like it's somewhat hard to measure, right? Like you can figure out the steps to like incorporate it in a practical sense, but Mm -hmm. since it is like pretty much a subjective experience of the individual, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. like, are there any ways to measure flow? Like, are there questionnaires? Are there certain like interview questions that you can ask? Like how, like, I'm curious if that's like in the literature at all, like any ways to measure that subjective experience yeah so there's actually probably too many ways to measure flow right now there's (laughs) a lots of different scales out there that have different um sort of operationalizations of flow um you know sort of there's there's really nine dimensions that have been debated um of flow Uh, i sort of i talked about some of them earlier but um, different scales measure, you know, different number of those, and um, they have different like contextual, um, like anchors, like at work or at home. Um, there's flow as like a trait or like a disposition. So, you know, you can there's scales that measure like how frequently you tend to get into flow over periods of time. But it's also, um, you know, a cognitive state that we experience, you know, 
frequently throughout the day or, or like maybe not frequently, but we experience it at like different times for different lengths of time. So there's, there are scales that measure the state of flow that ask you like, you know, um, right before you uh, answered this survey or, or got the message to answer the survey, like, were you in flow, but it doesn't say where you're in flow, but it asks you, you know, um, nine items usually about the different dimensions and you rate from, you know, one to five, like, you know, strongly disagree to agree to strongly agree. Um, and then, you know, can measure it that way. So um, there are scales like that. Some research has also started to look at uh, physiological uh, measurements of flow. They really correlate them with these scales because that's all we can really do right now. So mm-hmm. um, heart rate variability is one physiological measure that has been correlated with flow. Um, I know that there's been some like cortisol studies that have looked at the relationship between cortisol and flow. Um, some some researchers have looked at, I think, EKG, uh, not EKG, but like fMRI and other like brain um, type of, you know, work that's sort of over my head at this point, but <laughs> I'm really interested in it. And they've sort of shown that there are like physiological markers of flow and that it's not just a subjective experience. It is something that shows up physiologically. Um, so I think the future is super exciting as far as that's concerned as technology improves and some of these like wearable devices become more commonplace. Like my dream was really to do my dissertation using like giving all participants an Apple watch, which I quickly learned would be uh, way overly ambitious and that if I ever wanted to graduate, I should not do that. So I didn't, (laughs) but um, ideally if I had unlimited funds and could give all participants an Apple watch, I'd love to, you know, run a a sort of longer study to, to help uh, develop those measures. But there are a lot of different ways of measuring flow and they're all imperfect, but Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true for for a lot of um, constructs in general. So, um, and all and also a um, just a part of studying something that isn't as widely researched. I think. Yeah, uh, I think that it's definitely out of my realm as far as like the the physiological markers, mm-hmm. but. You know, that kind of goes more into like neuroscience, but I know IO has been mm-hmm. using like cognitive neuroscience more and more to understand, uh, you know, individuals in the workplace and things like that. But I, that would be so interesting to know, like, are there certain areas of the brain that like light up when you're in flow? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like you said, you mentioned like the, the heart rate and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's really cool stuff. And you know, I, I am curious, uh, does flow like, uh, can it, cause like, when you hear about flow, you think about like productivity and mm-hmm. creativity, but can it mm-hmm. actually foster like better learning and memory can flow help with your memory and learning? So I'm not, um, like too familiar with the research as far as the, you know, learning outcomes are concerned with flow. But from what I do know, yes, the answer is people um, do tend to learn quicker when they're in flow. And um, 
you know, it's one of the exciting like outcomes of interest that people explore um, as well as like reduce burnout. In my own research, I've really looked at engagement, burnout and performance and flow um, time and time again. And the research that I've done um, has predicted lower stress and lower burnout, um, higher engagement and higher um, subjective performance. I haven't gotten in, um, too much objective stuff yet, but um, we're, we're working on that. So um, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely associated. And that's one of the exciting things about it when I got into it was here's this thing that seems to affect so many different um, important outcomes in the workplace that really has been underexplored. Um, and especially underexplored has one thing that's been underexplored has been um, like, how do we get people into flow at work specifically? Um, and that's why I thought it was exciting to, to get into. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm super interested in, in personality. So I always try to kind of link personality to other like IO theories and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's in the, it's in the literature at all, but even if it's not, and you're not too familiar with it, I'd love to hear your take on this. Do you think that there are certain personalities that can achieve flow better or, or is there different personalities that almost can't achieve flow? Like, you know, just those individual uh, differences in personality. How do you think that relates to flow? Yeah. So there are, um, there are individual differences that, that have been shown in the literature to, to help people to experience flow more frequently. Um, there's been studies of like big five and um, I think openness and like high need for achievement were two of them, um, two of the sort of like big five measures that correlated with getting into flow. Um, and then there's, they've done some research on, actually like genetic markers and there are like genetic markers that have been associated with people who can get into flow more frequently. And mm -hmm. that's what a lot of the research has focused on is these like individual differences that were, that, you know, you're kind of mentioning. And what I've really focused on with Dr. Nolan and others has been, what are the things that like we as individuals can do um, to get into flow more frequently or to try to get into flow more frequently um, because of this paradox of work that we were talking about where we don't have as much um, control over the environment. And one of the things that I've really focused on in my research has been mindfulness and, and how mm -hmm. like mindfulness can help us to um, access flow states or really to um, develop the um, competencies that we need to get into flow. Um, so this is research that I've been working on with Dr. Nolan and um, one of um, my colleagues in my cohort, Aditi Sashtev. Um, we've looked at, yeah, mindfulness, um, how this really helps to uh, develop the skills of concentration. So both mindfulness and flow are um, skills or, or like states that require concentration. And so doing like a mindful practice, um, we think can help develop that skill that you need to be able to sit down at your desk and, you know, get that report going and get yourself into flow by focusing your concentration on the task at hand. 
And that's that's what I'm interested in exploring moving forward too, is like, are there these like competencies or these skill sets that we can learn and or help our employees learn um, so that they can like get get the benefits of the state as much as possible at work and also um, elsewhere. Yeah, that's super fascinating stuff. And I'm actually really glad that you're doing more research on that and that you mentioned that because I'm definitely big into mindfulness, meditation. I, I don't know if it necessarily like helps me enter flow or if it makes a difference, but in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, I do these breathing exercises and I guess it kind of uh, just gets me in the zone more. Maybe not like mm-hmm. that, that optimal state of flow, but it definitely, mm-hmm. I feel like is at least a positive way to kind of get into that flow, like mindset easier. Yeah. I mean, my personal hypothesis is that, um, being able to experience flow in other domains besides work helps us to experience flow, um, in other areas, including work. So, um, I, I think it's a, it's a skill that we often learn in sports because sports is one of those areas where um, those elements that I was talking about, those three things, the clear goals, the challenge, skill balance, and the feedback is sort of like built into that, right? Is built into sports because like sports are difficult. They're, you know, often these like complex rules that you have to follow, but you are the goal is to win the game and to score the points and the feedback is whether or not you're doing that right. So it's sort of built in. But I also think that um, performing in areas like that and and like recognizing when you're in flow um, is sort of a way of developing the skill of getting into flow in other areas too. Um, So that's something that hasn't to my knowledge, really been explored. I'll, I'll, I'm going to call it like flow transfer or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea that like doing it in this type of domain can help you in this other domain or this transferable skill um, is something that I, I think is real, but I haven't seen any um, studies, you know, look into before or explore in the past. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, flow is so cool. So I'm you know, super happy that you're doing the research, especially in a topic that's maybe not being researched, researched as much in the workplace. So, I mean, I could, we could talk about flow forever. I mean, I feel like (laughs) I entered a state of flow in this conversation talking about flow. So that's awesome. (laughs) But (laughs) me too. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I kind of want to transition to uh, another topic because, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, uh, I mentioned in the, you know, uh, first minutes of the podcast that you were doing uh, your own podcast at Metro and you have ties with Metro. You're on the board there. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences at Metro and and what led you there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Metro is a Metropolitan Association of Applied, sorry, it's the Metropolitan New York Association of Applied Psychologists. Um, it's actually the oldest um, IO group in the country, from what I understand. Wow. And I've, yeah, it's really, it's a really cool thing. Um, our members, so because it's so old, we have, you know, members that have done incredible things in the field. 
um, you know, a great network of people. Every month we have really interesting speakers from all over the country um, come join us and um, speak to our members. Uh, it's been, um, you know, virtual for the last year because of COVID, but um, I actually joined the group when I moved back to New York after my master's because I wanted to, you know, meet like-minded people. And um, I really kind of went through my master's program without knowing many other IOs and um, didn't have many people to talk to about the field and what it was like to, you know, pursue a career in IO. And there's so many different routes that you can really go. So when I moved back, I looked up you know, the different groups in the area and saw, you know, how awesome Metro looked. And um, I quickly made some good friends there and would go to all of the meetings a little bit early to help my friend Julia, who was setting up um, the food and like the catering, so the food and the drinks for our events. Um, and because I would get there early, I really got to know a bunch of members and, um, you know, really enjoyed the, the conversations that I had there and ended up becoming the career day chair and running career day there. And then over um, like in the spring, I got elected to be secretary, which is the first position on the board. And because of COVID, we were kind of talking as a board about how we can, um, you know, connect people and make sure that that sort of networking element remains. And because I had talked to so many different members and gotten to know people of really all ages and, and backgrounds, um, I said, oh, well, you know, I think one thing that would be really interesting would be to have a podcast where we interview our own members and um, get to know them a little bit, highlight their um, career paths and um, maybe spark, spark up conversations for when we go back in person. And so far it's been pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Alan Kraut, who uh, worked at IBM for like 30 years. And then after he worked there, he became a professor at, uh, at Baruch for another 20 years. So, um, you know, these are the type of people that we have as members, as well as, um, you know, people of all ages, including some of my of my closest friends. So um, it's been pretty cool to be a part of, and I'm excited to see where this, this project goes. So definitely follow us. It's called the Metro podcast. You can get it, um, you know, on all the different distribution channels where you get your podcasts like Apple and Spotify and um, Google and all of those places. Yeah, definitely check it out. The first episode is up right now. Like Jared said, he talks to Dr. Alan Kraut. Very interesting stuff. I think it's super cool what you're doing because Metro has so many fascinating members throughout the years that I think it's really nice to hear their unique takes on things, what they've been through, their experiences. They're all experts in the field of IO. They have so many, you know, interesting things to talk about. So yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, I'm I'm really glad that you're doing that. And we kind of started uh, our podcast at the same time. So I think that's really cool. Any way to kind of spread the word of IO because, you know, we need some more, uh, you know, knowledge out there about IO. We need to spread the word of IO 
and people need to know about this type of stuff because it's super useful to know, super fascinating. And yeah, I'm definitely check it out. Metro podcast. Yeah. Thank you. And I just quickly, I just want to say that I actually discovered IO um, through a podcast that I was listening to randomly in the, and the school that I ended up going to. So I think it kind of like goes back to that as to why I wanted to start it. But um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people go through their whole undergraduate experience, never hearing or learning about IO and, and all of the different things that you can do in the field. So um, you know, between this podcast and the one that, that I've been lucky enough to be able to start, hopefully people can learn more and, and, uh, you know, get into the field. For sure. And I know that you had, uh, Hofstra's own Dr. Grossman on, uh, what was it last week? She talked. Yeah. Yep. She was our last speaker, which was great. She, she spoke about her, um, meta-analysis with team dynamics and, um, is, it was really great talk. So, um, definitely check it out. If, if you join and you're a member, you can actually go back and, um, look at the, you know, past, uh, presentations we've been starting to post those and, um, yeah, check it out. Yeah. I'm upset that I, I missed it, but I definitely would love to have her on the podcast too and talk about it. I know she's has some really cool research on teams and team dynamics, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. She was great and is great. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that this is a good time to end the episode. Unless Jared, you have anything else that you want to talk about or that's on your mind. I know we're nearing about 50 minutes, so don't want to, you know, bore anyone (laughs) too much. (laughs) No, no, not at all. I, I really appreciate you having me and I'm excited to kind of get the word out there about the field and about flow and just to have the opportunity to speak with you. So thank you so much for, for having me on today. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I love flow. I love what you're doing. Love your research, you know, keep at it. I think you can definitely do some great things and you're doing a lot of things right now. So I don't know how you do it, how you keep up with it, but just keep doing what you're doing. And once again, uh, Dr. Weintraub, I should say. (laughs) congratulations on getting your PhD in this hectic time. And thank you again for sitting down with me and and discussing. My pleasure. Thank you so much again. And please feel free to reach out to me, uh, anybody listening at any point. And Ali, you too. Uh, I really appreciate it. So thanks again. All right, everyone. Have a good night. After midnight.